Welcome to The Glow Show from Grow Lab Organics, hosted by Charlie Lyons. So how's everyone doing? I hope you're all enjoying the season so far. Welcome to week three of The Glow Show from Grow Lab Organics. As always, I am your host, Charlie Lyons, and we are going on a journey into the power of cannabis. We have been enjoying some interesting discussions and conversations around how diverse the plant is this week at Glow HQ. You've heard me talk about this before in some of our video content, but the number of applications it has from building materials right through to medicine is incredible, really. But one thing I always come back to personally is cannabis, it doesn't discriminate. It's used by old people, young people. In fact, it's used by people of all ages, really. It crosses every stripe of diversity, gender, race, sexual orientation, socioeconomic background, and broadly, wherever you are in the world, you'll be able to find people using cannabis in some shape or form. It's pretty incredible. I've been doing a lot of reading in the last weeks about job creation in North America and how one of the big driving forces uh, is the cannabis industry. It's playing a leading role in the creation of um, jobs. Obviously, it's a frontier industry. And it's really exciting what this plant can do for the job market in both the British Isles and Europe more broadly. One of my hopes, and I'm going to be leaning right into this in my role at Glow as a co-founder of the company, is that we try our very, very best not to import many of the faults that other industries have in terms of diversity, in terms of the way we build teams and um, grow this industry. And these are going to be themes that we explore in more detail in the coming weeks and months, but I do think it's important that we keep them front and center. And this leads us nicely into my guest this week. I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the show Ophelia Chong and Angela Cheng. Uh, they're two of the most significant leaders in the cannabis space. You will know that they are regularly featured in the High Times Top 50 Women in Cannabis. Uh, they're full of passion, ideas, knowledge, creative energy. Their roles cover everything from product, brand, marketing, patients, and pretty much everything in between. I'm delighted that they've made some time from their busy schedules to talk with me today. Uh, so without further ado, let's get on with it. And welcome to The Glow Show, Ophelia and Angela. What I'd love to do is just kick off with both. I mean, both of you have so much going on in the cannabis space. I could never do it justice. So I would just love both of you to just um, give the audience uh, a little bit of background about you know your path, what you've been doing in your own journeys, how you found cannabis, and what you're kind of doing with the plant within the space today. Let's go to Ophelia first. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm, I'm so... Because I... I watch a lot of BBC, so talking to you is so sexy. I'm telling you, it's like oh, my dream has come true. I have an Englishman talking to me rather than me listening to a detective on a show. Okay, so I've been in cannabis since high school, had a, a break from it, but then came into it with a stock image uh, company in 2015, Stockpot Images, um, because I wanted to change the image of who smokes weed because my sister uses it for a medical condition and she is not what you would call a stoner. So I had to change that through imagery. And uh, also I created Asian Americans for cannabis education because there are very few of us. Like I always say, I walk into a room full of marshmallows and I'm looking for a raisin and there ain't none. 
So when I did find another reason, I would run to that reason and go, what are you doing here? And if they weren't hotel staff, then I would, and they were in cannabis, I would talk to them. So that's my story. And thank you so much for having me here. Amazing. Angela, do you want to, do you want to go next? Just give, uh, give us a roundup. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Charlie. Really appreciate it. And um, I second I second the, the accents. I think it's fabulous. <laughs> I grew up in Canada. So um, I would say that my first experience with cannabis was really when my mother called me and, and was very concerned. And, and it turned out the house I grew up in, she had been renting it out, had been turned into a grow house. So that was probably one of my very first experiences as a teenager. Um, after that, I went into really just, you know, my passion is marketing. And I spent about 20 years in liquor marketing before deciding I really wanted to work with the plant. And I moved to California, the largest market in the world, and worked with uh, Lowell Smokes and then worked with uh, Raw Garden. And so here I am. Lovely. Well, I know both of you, um, just to kind of round out on your own on your own journeys, both of you have kind of had so many moments within the space. And I just wondered if each of you could just take a a minute just to give me kind of a couple of highlights of your own personal paths with the plant uh, in those journeys. Well, I, uh, on the plant side, I would say that, you know, really working with Lowell and Lowell was really one of the most iconic brands here in California. And we really got worldwide recognition with opening the very first cannabis cafe we're incredibly known for the packaging where when you opened it you could have a pre-roll there was a match inside right it was widely copied in fact so just the opportunity to work with incredibly creative people during the early days of rec in california have been just amazing and then secondly recruited by uh, raw garden which is one of the largest um, brands in in california and creating the Raw Garden Social Club. So that was really um, a social club for bud tenders. And here in, in the States, because consumers are still walking into dispensaries to uh, consider a product, it's pretty important to influence bud tenders and making sure that bud tenders understand you know, the brand, have education talking points so that they're able to effectively share uh, what the brand sort of ethos are for consumers. So I think, you know, those two moments have been pretty incredible. I'm, I'm obviously not done yet. And there's a lot of new things that I'm working on that are, that are coming down the pike. This is what's going to happen to you guys. Five years ago, I was on an airport shuttle. And I'm very friendly. So I always like to talk to people. I say, where are you going? And so they would ask me and I would tell them. And then they would, they would say, oh, where are you going? I said, I'm going for a WE conference. They go, really? Are you stoned? And I said, no. And I asked them, if I owned a winery, would you ask me if I was drunk? And he went, oh, no, of course not. I said, well, the same thing for cannabis. It's an industry. I am not stoned. Then I got off the bus. But that has been the experience that I've had in the last five years. For you guys, Charlie, to change that image in the UK, it will be the same journey for you as well. well why, do you, why do you think that is, I mean, it's kind of a lazy question for people to ask right it's like the i don't know anything about weed but i'm just going to make a quick assumption and go are you high are you stoned do they just not know is it just i don't know what do you think people are uncomfortable but also because i'm an adult i'm an old adult ancient i'm not the skater what they would perceive to be the stone person or whatever that stereotype is the one i fought for about last six years and so for them it is really you you don't look like what we expect. 
first of all, you're Asian, you're old, and you probably got a job because you're on this airport shuttle. And so that is where it comes. It's, it's shock at their stereotype being blown up, uh, not only by a female, but also an Asian, because I'm the last person you expect to say, yeah, I smoke weed. So I think part of that is the normalization that we have to get to. Do you think it's changing? Oh, yes. Uh, every time I go to a conference now, there's a hell of a lot of us Asians. Yes. Whoop, whoop. But also, uh, I'm seeing the acceptance of the plant medicine for seniors and for just topicals. I'm seeing that movement forward. And also, we have what we call Cali Sober here. As I've been sober for 15, almost going 17 years now, but I smoke weed. So we're Cali Sober. And you're going to find that too, where people who are sober will probably move to plant medicine in the UK. Uh, Angela, you must have sort of seen this with your sort of background in in liquor and alcohol. Yeah. Um, we start to see, you know, more and more kind of the younger generation, millennials and Zed, one in three probably doesn't drink at all. Uh, maybe the middle one is a, a, a light occasional drinker. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm 42. When I was growing up, it was like everyone drank. It was just if you didn't, it was weird. And um, we are seeing that change now. One thing I'd like to, to ask both of you actually is on that point about the changing dynamic and what we have ahead of us in the UK and to a great extent Europe. I was at a conference uh, not so long ago. The audience is still suits, people wearing suits, uh, lots of white men um, and lots of uh, money, finance, banking backgrounds. I can't wait for that not to be what is put in front of me because I really don't think that's a fair representation of the plant, the industry as it should be. Have you felt that change? Have you kind of been through that? I mean, you, you referenced it there, Afida. Are you seeing that as well, Angela, both of you? Uh, I would say that in terms of the financing part of it, there's still a lot of Caucasian men. I do think that that is slightly changing. And I just want to add to the, the normalization piece and, and what we call Cali Sober, the, the terminology around it, is that when I first started in the industry, which is not even that long ago, and I had friends that had brands in Colorado, so I, I flew out to visit them. It was definitely still a little bit more sort of stoner mentality. And I think even in offices, when it went wreck, I remember when um, the head of, of, of the brand or the founder of the brand would ask me, hey, do you think it's appropriate that, you know, uh, people that work here are, are smoking during the day? And I said, no, because I come from liquor. And even if we had a bar on every floor, you're not drinking all day at work. So I think that's already changed. Um, there's a lot more people that come from traditional industries that are, that are and, and then by traditional, I mean sort of more marketers, CPGs, et cetera, that have a, a traditional background in marketing coming in and developing budgets and developing plans. When I first started, um, that did not happen. I put together a one-year strategy, budgets and plans and and people looked at me like I had, you know, three heads, <laughs> what budget and plan. So that's also changing. Um, as it goes back to the people in the room, I do think that's slightly changing, but I'd love to see more of it. And I'm happy to say that I just came back. Ophelia and I were just at Hall of Flowers, which is the largest trade show. And there's a lot more women-led founders, which is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. Love seeing that. Um, people of color. That's just fantastic. And that was not even, that was definitely not the case even two years ago. I can see, uh, I feel you've got your merch there from, from, from HOF. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, we started, we see that a lot over here. You know, we've, we've got Maggie Connors coming on the show in, in, a, in a few weeks from Basito and oh. um, lots of other, you know, female leaders and obviously people of color as well. 
Um, it is amazing to see that. It's a shame that we kind of still have to highlight and talk about that because it should just be that, you know, there is an equitable future, but uh, we will continue to, to all work towards that, um, which is which is the right thing to be doing. Can you can we talk a little bit about um, obviously you've got a lot of experience in, in the industry, seeing a lot of change. Obviously, you're out in California as well. Talk to me about the stigma of the plant and the kind of how some of the taboos or things are changing around cannabis over the last kind of 10 years. And how quickly is it? continuing to change and, and what can we kind of expect next it's interesting you use the word taboo because that's a propaganda word when you want to make something don't do that that's bad for you 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 put words similar to word taboo or bad for you because what we do with language is we try to move you away from one opinion to another that benefits us whoever us is and with the uh with nixon coming in and basically wanting to slam every black man into jail, he put cannabis up there because it was a low-level drug, and that was how they rounded everyone up. But now, using the word taboo, that is from the past. Mm. We have to remove all those words to bring education to the forefront, which is why you guys are going to have to focus on hiring people who can educate, people who look like the people that they're going to talk to. That's what Angela does. She's better at it than I am, but it is changing the language. Yeah, I think, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. And Ophelia, thank you for that uh, answer. I think that was just fantastic answer. But I think what's interesting is the more my dog, <laughs> so the more the more we talk about it. So the fact that you know, Charlie, you're bringing this conversation to the forefront, and the more we talk about it, the 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 more normalized it becomes, right? And when there's people like you and, and I and Ophelia and other folks in the room just having a conversation around it, the fact that I felt very comfortable saying, hey, I just tried a psychedelic spray yesterday and I answered all these questions, that normalizes it. So I think the more we talk about it, the more you see it, the more you see people like us or like yourself um, talking about the plant, the, the more there is less of a stigma and you know a taboo use, use utilizing those words. And then so much has changed. So in my industry, you know, um, I worked with the top concentrate brand and, you know, in the past you would think someone smoking a bong looks very ugly and, and just sort of, you know, drug use, right. Quote unquote. But mm -hmm. now there's beautiful hardware like Puffco. And you, I know, you know, Jason one very well, where it, it's actually an art form, or I just went to, I just went to an art show where there was really beautiful glass bongs. It's basically an elevated form of art. Yeah. So how about we consider that and look at some of the hardware and some of the beauty that comes out of this industry where it feels like it's something that's almost collectible and no longer a stigma, something you almost want to showcase in your home. So I think yeah. that's all changing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, I can't remember which brand it is. You guys might know better than me, but there's there's uh, one story I was reading. I think there's a, there's a great book called High on design which really focuses on the kind of uh the aesthetic of cannabis and the the way things are changing into these kind of lifestyle brands i can't remember the lady but she was saying that one one week she kind of got out her cannabis and in a ziploc bag there was like a neon alien bong and a grinder which was kind of luminous colored and she kind of looked at it and she's like this just isn't me you know i'm a I'm a, a 30, 40 year old woman, you know, I, I I enjoy cannabis for a number of reasons, social lubricant, therapeutic benefits, medicinal, whatever it may be. And, and then she said about creating a brand which was, you know, destigmatizing the hardware and the materials around it. So not going to the Puffco place, which is obviously technology and design coming together to make really great 
uh, hardware, but this was very much about beauty and the elegance of design and color. And, and, you know, like you say, if you saw it around the home, you would not be like, that's a pipe or a water pipe. You'd be like, that's a, that's a cool ornament. Right. So, and you know, you see the Seth Rogen stuff with houseplant, you know, and his pottery stuff. That's a well-worn path, but it is, uh, exciting and interesting to see some of the, um, the beauty of art and design coming into cannabis to thaw away the inherent, uh, stereotypes around that kind of stoner culture, uh, for want of a better phrase. So, um, both of you have, have, have had a lot of different customers' interactions on the more on the patient side, on the kind of consumer side. Obviously, you guys are in a full adult use or recreational market, which we hope to be in at some point, but we probably still have some months, years to go, I would imagine. Um, you know, we're only just really scratching the surface of the, of the medicinal world. What, what have been the sort of unexpected insights you've learned from cannabis consumers? What do they really care about versus what you think or thought they would want? Uh, what's interesting is you use the word patients and here in California, I've really only worked with, with rec. So it's really truly just a, a product that consumers purchase versus uh, medicinal use. And what's interesting is I come from a pure sort of brand marketing background and I thought brand is really what would sell. So if we're talking about just pure consumer demand, um, it's interesting because if you look at the data, that's not that's not what, what consumers are looking for. They walk into the dispensary. I, I would say they're looking for authenticity first and foremost. So if you're too, if you come off as too large and too big and you're not educating the buttenders, the education piece is very important because they're going to be um, the ones that are recommending products. So you want the recommendation of a buttender first and foremost. Um, the second thing is Consumers are looking for for price, so they're price sensitive and and potency sensitive still for brands. So I would say that's changing. So as an example, is when we first went rec, a lot of uh, really smart branding people created incredible brands. And so you hear about it, you try it, but if it's not, you know, the efficacy isn't there. If it's not a good product, and then they're not going to potentially repurchase it. So mm. that's important. You've got to make sure the product is solid and great, but that is changing in the sense that I do think that consumers um, are looking now into brand values. So beyond price and potency, what does the brand stand for? How's the product grown? How is it made? Who are the founders behind the brand? Consumers do care about that. And I'm seeing that in data. And do you think there's any particular brands or, I mean, what we're doing at Glow is we're using blockchain technology to completely expose everything that's going into the production of all of our products, including, you know, any uh, information around efficacy or uh, any relevant um, medical reports, but also, you know, who grew it, who harvested it, who dried it, who who um, extracted it, whatever it may be, as much data as we can. We kind of want to expose everything to the customer because we've got a really sophisticated customer base in, in the UK and Europe. It's just we've, we've been living in the shadows because obviously it's been illegal. Did you have any examples or people that are doing a particularly good job of that and what you see? Or are you seeing technology come more to the fore in terms of exposing what went into the creation of, of, of products? I think the more transparent, I'm really happy you said that. Um, I think the more transparent you, you are, the better. And I think today's consumers are incredibly um, informed. So yeah. there's a, a lot of research. They're going to they're gonna look it up anyway. And I think the more transparent you are, the better. This goes across all product product categories. You're seeing that a lot now. So um, I think consumers care about how it's grown, how it's made, the process, whether there's an impact on the environment, especially here in California. I have seen on, on studies that consumers care about sustainability. Of course, there's always um, a balance between how sustainable you are and whether the product is profitable because 
frankly, it's just non-sustainable materials. Packaging the product is still sometimes um, um, has higher profit margins. With that said, I've seen that consumers will spend more money on sustainable products. So that's all fairly important. Extremely important to be transparent. Strains versus effects. I I wouldn't mind just touching on that with you. I speak to patients every week over here. It's, It's you know, we're, we're always in discovery mode, right? We have a, a complete duty to always be talking to, to our kind of patients or customers because they have all the answers to the problems that we need to solve for them because we exist to serve them, right? But a lot of people I speak to, they don't actually know anything about the strains. You know, if you're talking about a Gorilla Glue or a Green Crack or whatever it may be, they're like, no idea. Just tell me what it does. Also, there's an inherent fear or resistance from uh, the medical community when prescribing, you know, if you're going to say I'm going to prescribe 30 grams of green crack, uh, a doctor might find that a bit hard to do in the UK at the moment. Can you give me a read on if you think strains are important for consumers or is it more the effect and give me a a read on that? It's huge because I've been a judge multiple times for High Times and Golden Tarp and a few others. And what we always judged on was efficacy uh, scent, right? Burnability, how it does it burn? Does it burn white? Look and feel, also taste. And so basically, when we judge, you're given jars with numbers on it, but then they're developed into sativa, hybrid, and indica. If you were good enough, you were almost able to tell what strain that was just from the terps. Uh, you have to be able to do that over a long period of time. However, people out here, they have their favorite strengths, just like you have your favorite IPA beers. Mm -hmm. There's blonde, there's pale, there's dark, uh, right? And then you have your warm beer, whereas we like it chilled. So the purpose of that is that if you can find a brand that is stable in its genetics, right? Because that's what you're going to go towards too in the UK, is your genetics are going to be completely different than ours because your soil, your pH, and your water are going to be completely different. And so with us here in California, if you develop a strain that is super tasty, super effective, you're going to sell that. And if you can keep it stable. Mm. So that's a big issue right now. It's keeping your strain stable uh, with your brand. There's a few strains I love. Let's see. White Widow, Russian Assassin. I mean, a lot of these things that I can't find. But if I do find them, I will buy that regardless of the brand because I like that strain. So you're going to have two different groups, brand or strain. And usually brand people are not that connoisseur. Strain people are more of a connoisseur. Yeah. And just to add to that, I, I call that consumer sort of your heady boy or heady girl consumer. And they geek out on, on strains uh, 100%. And I would say that I come from the brand category. And Ophelia definitely comes from the, from the, the, the geeky a uh, heady, heady girl consumer category. And, and it's interesting because you are always going to have, and there are certain brands, if you look at, for example, Shravinsky's that is really into the genetics and there's other brands that are, uh, 710 is another one that is, is all about the genetics. That's what they're really selling and pushing. Whereas more, some of the widespread brands don't, they're selling more brand. Yep. Super interesting. I, I guess, uh, a constant theme there really is that kind of education piece, isn't it? Because, you know, you've got, like you say, the very knowledgeable, heady man or woman, as, as you say, Angela, uh, right through to the kind of novice where it's like, I just need to relieve myself of this pain, or I just want to get a, a I want to relax in the evening or whatever. It's like, I don't really care about the strain, I want the effect. But there is the, and that kind of the ribbon that runs through those different 
user types, which is the education, because the the very experienced, I know my strains, I know what I want, but then you ha- you have at the other end, and I guess oscillating between the two, there is a bit of a duty for us in the industry to help uh, inform, educate, inspire with the language of cannabis, the terminology around cannabinoids and terpenes and all the rest of it, because we're right at the front of this in the UK. Obviously, you guys are several years ahead of us in that, and there is a much more established kind of uh, audience. Well, that's where Angela is a genius at this because she had to teach this through an alcohol because, again, you have your, oh God, in my old days, right? You have your wheat vodka, you have your rice vodka, you have your single barrel, whatever, all that stuff. And so people know that. Angela has taught all that. And for her coming into cannabis is, again, going back to square one and teaching people that those uh, subtleties. And you're going to have to do that as well. Uh, eventually with your clients because each one is going to be a little different for every person. We even have some companies here who try to do genetic tests on you so they can tell you what strain works best for you. I don't know. I would spend $250 of that because I can just buy whatever. Also, you're going to have to educate people why that eighth is $25 and why that other eighth um, next to it is 95. That is Angela's job to tell her consumers why that the price difference is there. It's a really good point. And just, just if I may, uh, Angela, before you jump in there, is I guess that's where you guys, the, the bud tender is, plays a valuable role here, right? Because we, we obviously don't have that in Europe at the moment. But I remember when my first experience of, uh, I went into some early dispensaries in San Francisco, but my first kind of one where I felt, wow, this is really the, the level up here, which is I think I went to Planet 13 in Vegas. And it was like Nike had got it on with Apple and they'd given birth to this amazing <laughs> cool which is like a Nike, Nike town meets a, an Apple store. <laughs> uh, the bud tenders, they were like Apple geniuses. You know, they came around, everything's in these beautiful glass display cases. And I was just like, tell me everything, right? And then you get all this amazing information. But Angela, maybe to you, w- working with all the brands, especially Raw Garden, how important is, is that bud tender in terms of pushing product and, and the knowledge base that they represent when you do get customers coming into these, these dispensaries? It's vitally important. So the liquor industry knows this. And so we spend a lot of money and a a lot of effort really training uh, bartenders. And if you think about it, you walk into a bar typically, right, back in the day, you sit down at a bar and you ask the bartender, what should I drink? And the bartender will ask you, well, what do you like? Do you like dark spirits or white spirits? Oh, dark spirits? I have a new product. It's called Duce Cognac. Would you like to try it? May I suggest this specific product? That program, may I suggest, is something that, you know, my team and uh, my cohorts have designed to get the bartender to recommend it. So when you walk in now to a dispensary, um, 50% of consumers in California still don't, aren't clear on what they're going to purchase until they walk into a dispensary. So the retail environment is very important. The butt tender is very important. You have to make sure that the butt tender loves your product. And I saw that because a few years ago, prior to sort of what we call trade advocacy, um, and by trade, that is your retailers and your bartenders and ensuring there's really um, great education and programs and tools for them to speak eloquently about your brand. Because you've got to design programs that appeal to these bartenders. That's super important. And then also ensuring that you show up on the shelf. So what do you look like on the shelf from a merchandising standpoint? The other 50% is the awareness piece, right? So this is where if you're not um, yet a cannabis consumer, how do I get you to consider our brand? Well, then that is where the experiential comes into play. The promotion comes into play. 
let's just say you're a music or design advocate. I want to make sure that I show up at a music festival that you, you may be at, right? That is where the promotional efforts come in from a cannabis standpoint. Well, let's just say you're a furniture lover. Let's make sure that we're at a design fair, right? If you're a design leading brand, that might get you to consider the product, but then you still have to walk into a dispensary to order. So I think that that element of um, that final step of ensuring that the bartender is recommending the product is pretty important. And then if you just think of yourself as a consumer, you're walking in, you're also going to look at price. So to Ophelia's point, you know, what is the difference between the $95 product versus, you know, the $60 product? In some cases in California, what I'm seeing is the price element is still very important. And then just rolling out of that into the kind of flower into concentrates. And obviously, Angela, this is, this is right in your wheelhouse. I guess over here, again, it's still very flower dominated. We are seeing more and more kind of rosins and some of the solventless extract, which is obviously music to our ears, because that's something that we're going to be kind of pushing and, and driving for at, at Grow Lab Organics. But I'd love to get your take on how you see things, both of you, from a kind of flower into concentrates and the, the, the good and the, and the not so good in those, in those different product lines. So in, in California, consumers purchase concentrates um, about one to two times a month and flour one to two times a week. And, the, and I would say that from the concentrate standpoint, what's interesting is it's difficult to grow great flour. So obviously, Ophelia has judged a lot of competitions and she's familiar with the taste, how it burns, how it smells, what it looks like. Is it green, right? So part of the reason some companies have not jumped into flour is you can create really great concentrates and make sure that it's a very good product, a live resin, and make sure that it's consistent versus flour. So I think it's difficult to, to if you, especially if you're a connoisseur um, and you're familiar with flour, to ensure that you have great flour versus concentrates. You can hold on to that sort of um, efficacy and the product consistency of a concentrate easier than, than flour. But what we're seeing here is definitely... Uh, a lot of flower lovers, we're also seeing smaller sizes. So dog walkers, or you, you can just smoke it. And it's not soggy. You don't have to share it, right? You're done when you finish walking your dog. <laughs> yeah, those those are doing great um, over here. Pure Beauty, for example, as, as a brand is um, is making these minis. And that appeals to, to someone like myself that can't finish an entire joint. I also don't want to relight one. I don't want to put it into a container to save it. Um, and then I would say that in terms of the top 10 brands here, there's a lot of edibles in our in our market. Um, and so I would say, you know, Wild and Kiva and Canha are the top. And then from a vape category standpoint, it would be and concentrates, right? It's busy, it's raw garden. And then flower is is like Pacific Stone um, is, is coming up. Uh, another brand is Absolute Extracts, which our friend actually uh, oversees. It's a Canacraft brand. So it, it, there's a there's about top 10 brands and then there's a lot of other brands but i you know you're never too big to fail and i've seen incredibly small brands rise to the top and then larger brands drop so very important to always uh, consistently speak to the consumer and have a consistent product at a good price point if you did you have a, a view on the concentrates oh yeah we have a hell of a lot of biomass in california basically we're facing an apocalypse right now Biomass was going anywhere from 80 to 100. It's going to be dropping down to 20 because we have 1.5 million units booked into metrics, which is our, our system of you have to put that into the government system so they know what you're selling. So we're going to have a hell of a lot of biomass and that is going to go into distillates because flour can't sit around. 
what we're going to see is an increase in edible brands, increase in very cheap concentrates, because right now wholesale diamonds are going for $2 a gram. I could buy that and turn it around at $15 and still make a profit and wipe out most of the other brands on the shelf right now. So what we're seeing in California is an abundance because we're landlocked, Mm -hmm. literally, legally, we're landlocked. What is going to happen is that concentrate is going to go really cheap. We're going to be able to bring more edible companies online because of the availability of distillate. So there's going to be a switch. Yes, flour is huge, but there's going to be a groundswell coming probably in the next year of a lot of more edible skews coming out of this. Edibles, tinctures, drinks, because all this distillate has to go somewhere. Yes, we can store it, but it's got to go somewhere into our products and they're going to be sold cheaply and brands are going to buy it. Uh, So that's what's going to happen next. Flour is always going to be king, but I see a little bit of that too. Will the brands pass the savings to the consumers? Right now, indoor, top quality indoor flour is going $800 a unit. It used to go for about 16 to 25, up to three, depending on the strength. We're dropping so low now because there's just so much flour around. That is going to change our market. That's going to change yours too. Supply. That is what's going to dictate what goes on the shelves. So just to add to that, Ophelia, and I totally agree with uh, your prediction, is that as a brand, you don't want to necessarily go a race to the bottom. So because there is so much biomass as a, as a marketer and as a brand, it's probably it's very important to be as transparent as possible and, and talk more about what your brand stands for so that the consumer will choose your brand. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it was a good point. Uh, that you touched on earlier, Angela, and I, I think people are going to start to pick on. You know, everyone has their own belief system, right? And if they find a brand that speaks to them beyond uh, just the product, it's like, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? What are your values? How have you? Why do you exist? Um, you know, we all know about the the Golden Circle and Simon Sinek. It's like the brands that can tell you why they exist are the ones that people choose, right? So that's uh, that's definitely uh, music to my ears uh, in the in the creative zone of of, of Glow. Just, just wanted to touch, just to round off, uh, kind of guess this section. Um, seeing as we're talking about concentrates, uh, is, is dosing. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more technology coming into the marketplace. There's lots of different devices. It's getting quite busy. Um, we obviously have a keen eye on this because if you're dosing concentrate from a medicinal perspective for a specific condition, you know, you, I would say you can add, but you can't subtract. So you don't want to have too much because it can be quite overwhelming. So dosing is very important. Uh, how do you see this kind of space, technology, uh, devices, and, and obviously getting the dose right? I, I think it's more consumer preference. Um, I would say that from a dosing standpoint, I, I think that like consumers, if you just, and by concentrates in our, our world, concentrates is also vapes. So that's easy, right? If you take a puff, you can immediately feel the effects. It's just like smoking flour. Um, when you use a device, same thing. And I would say that some of the closed loop, I would say from a, from a, from a device standpoint, some of the closed loop environments are going to not do as well. And I, I speak from a commercial standpoint um, versus something that the consumer can control. So I think it's just understanding your your own preference in, in terms of like how strong the product is. I just wanted to touch, uh, you kind of, we referenced this a little bit earlier when we were, we were talking, you know, obviously we're not really in that recreational adult use space, but I, I kind of tend to feel like if you've got a medicinal market, you've kind of almost got a recreational market in, in many ways, in some respects. How do you see the kind of lines blurring? 
we stopped using basically we were fighting the word recreational when Prop 64 came out mm. because it sounded like for kids, right? It sounded fun. Well, it is fun. But so we went to adult use, right? Because it it narrowed the usage, right? Because recreational sounds like we're going to Disneyland, right? We're going to go wreck. So that was changed a little bit for adult use. Right now, yes, there are true medical patients, right? Who have to take RSO, which is Rick Simpson's oil, the concentrate. But that is a very small market. Right now, we have is the largest is the adult market. So that's who we have to appeal to. And so we have to appeal to them through branding, advertising, and packaging. And that's where Angela falls into that huge bucket. Me, I'm just more observational and probably more behind on manufacturing. But Angela is the face of how to present all of this to everybody. And Angela, on that, you know, obviously data is becoming more and more important for understanding customers' trends, you know, to really kind of make sure that you can meet those unmet needs in terms of product development and all the rest of it. How are you seeing data being used, um, you know, more effectively to really truly understand the, the kind of cannabis customer? I think it's vitally important. So I, I, I cross-reference. There's a lot of different data points. So, for example, Trees is store data that actually shows exactly what the consumer is purchasing and why and when and how often. Um, that said, not, uh, not every dispensary is on trees, so I don't get to see all the data. Um, I look at BDSA. I look at headset. Uh, I actually employ a third party called M4, and that does actually consumer you know, surveys of cannabis users. And I you know, utilize a lot of data. I look at Reddit. So um, there's Frontier, Meltwater, Reads, actually what consumers are saying on Reddit and I'll surface, you know, different brands. I can run reports. So I look at all those different elements and see if there's a storyline. I mean, there's a, as a marketer, I think as a brand creative, you're obviously very creative. It's you, you have a gut and then sometimes your gut is wrong. <laughs> so, so it's pretty important to look at data. And I think, you know, one key area stateside in California is there's a lot of women that are are utilizing cannabis and a lot of these brands are still very uh, male forward there's also a very large multicultural opportunity in california and liquor companies have known this for a long time because a lot of the programming i did was multicultural right and here if you look at uh, the largest youth base it's still men about 40 percent right and it falls within a certain age demographic but what i'm seeing is far more women right so if, if you're a concentrate company let's let's make it more accessible and normalized for women to understand how to use devices, for example, like a PUPCO, I'm seeing a very large uh, AFM and specifically even more so Hispanic audience that is especially here in California that is interested in, in cannabis. So those are all sort of touch points to look at. And then, as I mentioned before, you know, you can have shiny, beautiful packaging, but it doesn't necessarily work. So uh, consumers and from what I'm seeing, what they're purchasing, a lot of it is based on price and potency. Who do you guys think are the are real trailblazers? Obviously, you're, you're plugged into so many different brands, you know, whether you're working with for, um, you know, obviously, Ophelia, you're consulting for loads of different companies. Who do you think are really like leading the way and what's exciting about some of the some of these companies and what they're doing? I would I would say, you know, so I had the I had the recent opportunity to to chat a few times with Imelda Wallaficker of Pure Beauty. So I don't know if you're as familiar with that brand. Uh, she's a CEO of this incredibly fashion led brand 
which I find really interesting. Um, and it is not at all feels like a traditional cannabis brand. It's just yellow packaging, mini little dog walkers. And what she's doing is really bringing the art community into it. So my one of my passion points is art. And it appeals to me because one of the last shows she did was um, an art show with pretty incredible bongs. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. Two eyes. And um, so I think she's fantastic. Uh, she is a, a multicultural person herself. She's the head of a fantastic brand that's just growing year on year. And then at Hall of Flowers very recently, I had the opportunity to um, try Rose Delights, which is an edible brand that's very chef driven. And that is actually, you know, when I met the founders, they come from the creative world. So it makes sense. One of the one of the co-founders is a copywriter. Therefore, the descriptions of the edibles are just so appetizing. Feels like you're reading a infatuation. You're reading a food um, uh, review, if, if you will. So I love that brand. It speaks to me because I love food and I love art. So I think those two brands are, are, are pretty fantastic and not like the norm of other traditional cannabis brands right now in the space. And then I just want to highlight, I mean, um, I feel so fortunate to have met Ophelia. So I think Ophelia is just an incredible person. I would, I would say that I'm a bit of a fangirl. She's really done such a fabulous job of doing what she does in many different uh, arenas. Like she's a trail, you're a trailblazer, just not only in cannabis, but in the world of psychedelics. So, and she's also done a terrific job. I think a lot of us Asian Americans here had no idea that we were working and leading at some of the top brands until Ophelia put together uh, Asian Americans in cannabis education and, and produced, um, you know, one or two events where she highlighted all these incredible men and women of multicultural descent in cannabis. So, you know, I think those are, are some of the top three that I'm super, you know, really admire right now. Going on uh, Angela's track there, this is Asian-owned Tempo, right? This one is uh, cannabis-infused crackers, rosemary salt. Um, this one was also created by Asian-American Eric Esselau, who, Defonse, who unfortunately passed away in August, but he came from Apple, and his whole branding and attention to detail was Apple. So when he first came out with this, this was probably 2016, was a real first chocolate bar that was gorgeous. I mean, Kiva was already out, but they had their craft bar. This one slides out. The chocolates are pyramid. It's gorgeous. Also at Asian owned. So there's a lot of leaders coming out now with a lot of products, like we said, with Pure Beauty. And there's just so many now where, where our heads are exploding. But what's going to really explode our heads is what goes out East Coast to Massachusetts, right, to New York. What stores are going to open up in Cape Cod? But, and also what brands are going to come out of there? Because it's a completely different, like Angelo knows, it's a different taste out there. What flower will actually, genetics will exist in the humidity out there. But what are the flavors and branding? And we know if we go to New York, we have to go beyond everyone's expectations on branding and quality, because if it does not fly there, it's going to fail. What we have here is we had a, uh, there's a lot of leaders. It is leaders in a field that we have no idea where the, the end of the race is. We don't even know what the track looks like. There is no track. We're all running, but we don't know where we're running. And if we get there, we're lucky. So right now we're just kind of figuring it all out. Yeah, it's the, it's the classic uh, building the plane as we fly. 
uh, analogy. But just I just wanted to highlight uh, Ophelia has the best. I'm not even going to say it's a bag. It's a basket of swag. If uh, people want to get around Ophelia's house by the looks of it, it's got like every product under the sun. Yeah, yeah we're just getting a, a run through of all of those. It looks uh, it looks truly wonderful. Cool. Right. So I, I want to ask you guys in the kind of final couple of questions, because I could talk for, for days, really. But, you know, we should we should aim to at least finish before my evening and your day gets going. Um, what um, what do you what do you dislike about the industry at the moment? Where where are the areas for improvement? Obviously, nothing's perfect. So what do we want to see next? How can we keep all pushing forward? You know, the good guys and girls are trying to find each other all the time. What can we all do to kind of keep things moving forward in the most positive and optimistic way? Okay, coming from liquor, there was very set rules and regulations state by state. I had a book this big because I would execute programming and marketing across the country. And I would say that even today, it's still, you know, for example, you know, social responsibility, right? You always had to have a social responsibility message. We had to make sure that anyone I used in advertising looked 25 and over, not just 21 and over. And here, it's still a little bit blurred. So, you know, for example, even executing an event like Raw Garden Social Club, for butt tenders, you want to make sure there's product available for them to try. And you would be surprised at how difficult it is and how many um, legal, the legalities behind getting the product to uh, a third party location for butt tenders to be able to try product, right? At a liquor event, you can just buy, you can go to an on-premise event, you can make sure that consumers are sampling product. And I would say that the legalities um, behind behind the industry because we're not federally regulated is difficult. And I would love it if there was um, better rules and regulations. I would say Ophelia touched on this when she when we spoke about rec versus adult use. Um, I think this is going to be a, this will down down the line affect a lot of brands. Is that there's some brands uh, and products and names that sound like they're marketed to kids. So that is a problem. And I think that's something that we should all be aware of, because when we do go federal, I don't know when that will be. Um, I think it is important leaning forward and looking forward to make sure that the products have no way in shape and form appeal to kids. So just something to consider. I've seen it happen in liquor. You want to make sure that that doesn't happen in cannabis. And I, I think, you know, that's all that I just come from, from, from more of a commercial viewpoint, but that's what I would say yeah i agree i mean we're already seeing that over here and even in the uk and we're not in a in a legal adult use market yet but schools are already putting out warnings to parents in private mailers and letters and emails saying edibles are really powerful and, and bad the, the annoying thing about it is they're making out they're like crack you know the the language being used and all this it's just it's coming from a place of uh, you know, they're not informed uh, well enough. So yes, we don't want to see marketing to kids, but we, we also don't want to demonize everything to the point of it being incorrect. So there's a hell of a lot of work to be done over here. You know, we, we have, we have uh, things to do for sure. Uh, Ophelia, let's get a reward. It's the sheer irony of no drugs in the UK. It's yeah. ironic yeah. because you can <laughs> test your water and you probably got a couple of Schedule One drugs for sure in that water, <laughs> and it is almost ironic about how that all that because of I've been lobbying against uh, Asian Christians for years on cannabis, and it is the same pat answer. What about the children? Right. <laughs> I've been to a lot of city council meetings where they brought their kids, and I'm looking at those kids and I'm like, lady, that kid probably buys right <laughs> from high school. 
I'm telling you, you're not protecting anyone. And whatever your your misconceptions about this is crazy because do you mark your liquor bottles? You know, I was able to drink <laughs> at home yeah. and hide everything because it is about education. It's going back to Charlie, what you said, and Angela stressing so strongly is getting the right educators out there. People who look like the people who are going against it. You don't get the person who looks like the person they are fighting against. Yeah. You get an Asian woman out there to speak to. You get a middle-aged woman. You get a man or whatever to go out there and talk to them about what this plant is. You won't change their minds. It's going to be very hard. But you'll be able, the periphery who are listening are going to understand what you're saying. But going back to the acceptance of weed, okay, here's how far weed has been accepted. Okay, this was uh, debuted at Bang's party. It is a partnership with the Blues Brothers. Well, remaining Blues Brother, Dan Aykroyd, and his brother, Jim Belushi. It is a Blues Brother-infused chocolate. So how far have we come on this? We have come very far because I asked those same parents who are against weed, what were you doing in the mid-80s, honey? Right? What were you popping in your mouth? Did it affect you? And possibly some of that stuff, but really... Let's not come from a place of irony and hypocrisy. Let's come from a, a space of let's, can you just listen to me for five minutes? So that's what we have to do. That's a really, really valid message and, and, and very powerful. Uh, I, I just, I'm going to just finish with my, my usual finisher. Uh, there was loads of other questions I'd ask. We're going to have to do another session at some point in the future, guys. Uh, but I, I just would like to give you both a crystal ball uh, just for a short moment in time. Uh, just to literally go a bit into the future and tell me what you see happening uh, in the cannabis world uh, in the coming, let's say, couple of years. We're going to see a lot more M&As. So I, my crystal ball is, and I have, uh, is mergers and acquisitions. And I think there's going to be a consolidation. I think you'll see that uh, there's a lot of other players in the industry that are outside of cannabis that are going to be looking at brands. And uh, I can't predict, you know, when and if from a federal standpoint, but given, you know, just the news that we're even reading around Amazon advocating for cannabis tells you where it could be potentially going. So I think um, those three arenas, you're going to see a, a lot. If you look at, if you look at, for example, Bacardi, Bacardi owns, people think of it as just Bacardi rum. Well, Bacardi owns Grey Goose. They own Bombay Sapphire. They own Duce Cognac, they own San Germain. If you look at Diageo, those are, you know, they own the other half of the brands, Johnny Walker, and so on. So you're going to see, similar to a liquor conglomerate, a lot of these brands being held under the umbrella of a, of a larger conglomerate. My prediction, if we do go federal, it's going to take two years to write those laws because every state is going to fight. Our laws are better. And hell... I hope California does not go up there with their laws because not only is it Byzantine, it is destructive to entrepreneurship, it's destructive to creativity, it's destructive to the medical patients. So I hope that if we go legal federally, that we are allowed, of course, with some guardrails, but we are allowed to prosper in the way that we are selling a plant. Mm -hmm. And that we are able to move across freely. Of course, again, with guardrails, just like alcohol, but it is taking off those brakes and saying, you're bad people. We're going to keep you in this room until we like you and you can come out. 
hopefully my prediction is that we it will be a football in the next election. And if if football gets into the goalpost, it's going to take us about two years to write those regs. So I would say anywhere from three to five years, at least. So we have to manage what we have now. We have to cobble together what we have now. And like Angela, with her big ass book, we're going to have to have drag one of those books out and look at what Massachusetts, New Jersey, Illinois, Michigan, what each of those states demands our packaging to look like and the way we sell it. And we're going to be (laughs) all over the place until we can consolidate and work and live freely. Because right now we're still in jail. We're still under their thumb. Until that thumb is taken off, we can, we're going to be able to bring prosperity to a lot of people who need it, bring up small businesses, small brands. And of course, the MSOs are always going to be MSOs. There's nothing we're going to do about that. However, I want the little guy to have that thumb taken off of them and be able to move freely around this country. Great place to, to finish the show this week. Uh, thumbs off is what we're looking for. I just wanted to say a, a real, real deep thank you to both of you. It's been amazing to talk to you. Obviously, we've had a really good run up to this one. And yeah, I'd love to get you guys on again. I'm, I feel like you're holding up more and more swag out of your magic. <laughs> you know, that basket seems to have, it's like the, the TARDIS uh, from Doctor Who, which is obviously a UK show where you go yeah. in and it's a, a vast uh, environment rather than a very small looking basket. But um, you have Can more. Can you imagine, Charlie? The moment you tell people they can sleep without taking a pharmaceutical drug that will keep them addicted for decades with a plant, if they have that choice in the UK. I mean, I I was reading something the other day about how big the sleep market is worth in Europe. And I mean, the bottom line is if we can, as always, it's what we say at Glow is we just want to help people live better lives. That's all we're trying to do. You know, this uh, this plant's grown in the ground for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. It's only been illegal for, what, 1% of the time we've been using it as a medicine or otherwise. It's uh, it's time for change for sure. But to both of you, huge thank yous. Have great days. And uh, let's wrap it there. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you so much. So I wanted to just say thank you once again to Ophelia and Angela for taking the time to talk with me today. There is just so much to learn from both of them. The breadth of knowledge between them is truly inspiring. And I do always wonder when I speak to Ophelia, how many cannabis products has she actually got in her house? I mean, that was amazing stuff, wasn't it? Next up, I'll be joined by David Palaszczuk. He's known to many of you as the author of Branding Bud, which topped the Amazon bestseller charts for a number of weeks. Uh, I trust many of you who listen have got the book. It's a cracking read. If you haven't, I can't recommend it enough. And as always with our guests, there's just so much more to David than writing this book. Uh, He has his roots in skateboarding through the Zoo York team, which is iconic. And his career has taken in the art world, advertising, consumer packaged goods, of which he's a specific expert, technology, and of course, cannabis. So we will look forward to welcoming David next week. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll speak to you soon. The Glow Show. We believe in the power of cannabis.